0: Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to our special season of Abolitionist Lent Bible Study. This Lenten season, we are building on what we did in Advent to invite people across traditions and mediums to explore themes of revelation, disruption, examination, and embodiment in ways that support a larger faith movement, reimagining restorative solutions to community safety, health, and wellness. And by abolition, we mean not just the closing of prisons and ending of policing, that we do mean that, but also putting in place the vital systems of support that many communities are systematically disenfranchised from. Abolitionist Lent is a collaborative vision, a collaborative project between some organizations and some thought leaders, including organizations of Fellowship of Reconciliation, More Light, and the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship and thought partners including Reverend Lindsey Anderson, who's with us today, Miles Markham, Minister Candace Simpson and Reverend Ananda Barclay. So we invite you to join us throughout the Lenten season as we define, explore and reflect and take action to further the inbreaking of abolition into the world. Today, I'm so excited to have a special guest back and uh, our thought partner for abolitionist Lent Reverend Lindsay Anderson, to explore the theme of anger in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, Jesus in the temple at the money changers table. Welcome, Lindsay. Um, We're so glad to have you. And before we dive into this text, uh, I invite you to introduce your name, your pronouns, your work and identities, um, because we know those are with us wherever we're talking about abolition or exploring the Bible.
1: Thank you. Um, Thanks, Alex. I'm so glad to be here. Um, And good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening, whenever you watch this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am Lindsay Anderson, and uh, my pronouns are she, her. And I uh, currently live and work in the beautiful city of Detroit. Um, It is beautiful today. The weather is finally broken, uh, the cold weather. And I am uh, here in Detroit, I'm a co-pastor of Love Rising Lutheran Church, um, which is a proud black Lutheran uh, congregation. Um, And I I have been there for about seven years working with those folks and uh, just love them so much. Um, I am uh, from Southeast Michigan. I am home here. This is where I'm from. And um, I, my experience growing up here as a mixed race, uh, woman of color um, in all the things that are Metro Detroit inform a lot of the work that I do. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I do a lot of side work around issues of anti-racism and um, deconstructing white supremacy, and I do that work, all of that work, standing in the legacy of my ancestors who were Black, Indigenous, and white folks, Um, and with the communities that raised me, those communities that raised me. Um, I am a cis hetero person. In the world, and I try to carry that privilege responsibly. And I'm so happy um, for partners uh, like you and my friends at More Light who are welcome, who are willing to walk with me um, in grace. So um, that's who I am. That's that's what I'm bringing into the room today. And I'm um, excited to talk about abolition, both for um, my loved ones I know who are affected by the policing and prison system and uh, my community, um, whom it it victimizes and terrorizes, uh, and myself, uh, because I want to get free, too. And that's why, that's why we're doing this work. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. It is a joy to get to journey
0: together in these conversations and in the work for liberation across identities and across our world. Um, as y'all know, I'm Alex Patchen McNeil, my pronouns are he, him, and um, Lindsay, I really appreciate you naming the legacy of of those who have brought us to this moment. And I'm uh, as a white transgender man born and raised in the South, um, I call upon the legacy of my, my grandparents, my mother's family that especially um, embodied themes of abolition and resistance to segregation in Oklahoma and Louisiana um, and my other white kin who didn't, um, who gra- grappled with that in ways of their um, kind of living out where they were in, in different parts of North Carolina. Um, so I appreciate that. and. I uh, also root here in North Carolina, a place I was born and raised and moved away from thinking I had to escape to escape all the things and realizing, nope, all those, all those questions about racism, heterosexism, homophobia, transphobia, they just are everywhere and they come with you no matter where you are. And so coming back here to uh, root in a place that I think needs to be and is grappling with those questions um, for where we are. And so uh, I have the pleasure of serving as More Life's executive director where we envision liberation, not just for LGBTQ folks, but what does it mean for us to get free from the shame that has bound us, that is not from God, um, both in our churches and in our world, and I think abolition, as we talked about it in our planning team, one of the pieces that has been so powerful in keeping us in our own mental and physical prisons is the shame of, of how we're, uh, a society's construction of what our bodies are supposed to be and do. And, um, and one of the pieces of abolition is trying to remove that shame and, and work around it, work it with it, examine it. So um, I don't know, I think this text might have something to say to us about that. I'm excited to dig in. Yes. Whew, we got a doozy. So I'm excited to read this text, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, three different times, and we'll ask different questions as we read. But the first question that we ask is really a noticing. Um, what stands out to us as we hear it? And Lindsay, I would invite you to read it for us for the first
1: time. Sure. Turning my pages, you all can't see, but yes. um, <laughs> so I'm reading the NRSV version of John 2, starting at chapter 13, or verse 13 of chapter two. I'm gonna keep drinking my coffee and get yep, back. just keep it, it's morning, we welcome.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <clears throat> the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I'm curious what you noticed in this reading of the text. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, I um, was struck first by when Jesus says, um, stop making my father's house a marketplace by the word "market." And I think in other, I don't know if it's other translations or in other gospels, I I just remember in my memory what Jesus says is that this is supposed to be a house of prayer. And, but I think in this gospel, the word marketplace for me puts a different flavor on it. Um, And, you know, I think highlights for me the like that the problem is this like buying and selling capitalist like business um mentality it really is more um uh, um convicting around um that piece which is so a part of our modern culture right um And so it just highlighted the calling out of that in in ways that I had not noticed before. Mm, Yeah, he's not obscuring.
0: This is supposed to be a house of prayer, like putting the emphasis on what it's supposed to be, but instead Mm. naming
1: the problem. Right, right. And that the problem is so closely tied to like this idea of um, doing business, making money. Um, You know, I think often... In my formation, often the problem that was named here was that um, that people the, the that this was a system that was um, putting a price tag on God's grace, right? Mm-hmm. And that like, it was equating um, God's grace with something that could be bought and sold. Um, but a lot of those those. Um, interpretations didn't go on to say, like, let's talk about our, our big problem with buying and selling in general. Like, let's talk mm-hmm. about what the problematic nature of capitalism and how that has taken over our, our Christian faith, right? It was never mm-hmm. like, maybe we should rethink the whole way our whole stance on money as the church. It was like, oh, let's just make sure that that individuals know that the grace of God is free for them. Ain't nothing else free in the world. Yeah, <laughs> but, you had to pay for it all. Right, right. Um, yeah, so that just um, struck me off the bat. Mm, I think that's so powerful.
0: And what struck me, I really had a moment when I was like, wait a minute, is this really John two? Is this the second chapter of John? I had to look it up. I went to various sources and be like, wait a minute, did, the source I was using missed something. It was supposed to be John 12 or 22 in the 22nd chapter. And it made me realize that all the other gospels that have this story, put it, they they, they make it the final Passover before Jesus's death. It's like, this is the culminating action, but to have John place it here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, to me goes to your point of, of just how, um, foundational, this story is for for who Jesus is, and it's 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 not the last thing Jesus notices about the temple; it's the first thing, and um, it's a, it's it's then a theme that's going to carry throughout his ministry, um, particularly in the Gospel of John. But what if we imagine this at the beginning of Jesus's ministry across the Gospels and? what would that say? Not just that grace is free and everything else. Right. <laughs> All right. others pay cash. Right. Um, but <laughs> but, um, but, actually that that we're questioning the heart of how some of our institutional religious practices have
1: been constructed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, in the book of John, right? Jesus first to like highlighted public things he turns water into wine and then he turns over the tables which what an awesome like liberating party jesus who doesn't want that jesus like come on come on y'all um but yeah i think i think you're right that like this is setting up the foundation of um you, the gospels don't aren't laid out like they are by mistake, right? Like there's intention, and I think um, that part of this intention uh, for the writer of John is like this is important. Take take right. note, carry this with you. Read the rest through this this lens. Yeah.
0: yeah, this is kind of like we started. Like let's introduce ourselves and our identities. These are oh. Jesus's identities as yeah. as almost. Reimagining what faith can look like, um, and what do we have faith in? Is it mm. is it in order? Is it in a building, um, or is our faith premised on something else? I really think that um, the kind of metaphor of the temple, like I'm the temple, um, is an interesting shifting of what we prioritize. Um, In turn or or yeah, or like lift up as a true expression of faithfulness. I was really struck by it took a it's been we've been working on this temple for 46 years. (laughs) I made me wonder like, why in the world have we been working on this for 46 years? But at the same time, how many of our church buildings feel like they've been under construction for 46 years?
2: Mm -hmm. Like
0: never-ending improvements, never-ending. Crap to fix, never ending. Mm-hmm. The boiler exploded, etc. And and how much upkeep we have to, how much money we have to dump into these buildings? Yeah. And do we do that
1: at the neglect of the body? What a, I just want that question to hang in the. <laughs> do we? Um. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think for. Um, certainly, if anything has been highlighted for us this year, right? It's the the sort of foolishness of spending so much time and energy on these buildings, which we have now had to leave, um, and you know are, have been revealed as not the heart of mm-hmm. the ministry, the gospel, the our call. Um,
0: yeah, our so buildings call- are not
1: ours. Are not our essential employees. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And if y'all won't listen to Jesus in the gospel of John, maybe you can have lived experience that will Mm -hmm. give us wisdom. (laughs) Maybe we all can.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that there are really liberative and powerful ways to nurture the physical temples that we that we gather in, ways to reframe that space as not just for a select few, but for the wider community. And um, I think what we are invited in as abolitionists, as those envisioning abolition is to envision or imagine what what could the purpose of a church be if it was actually truly connected to its community? Um, That that's not a universal, everyone must now sell their building. Everyone must now do the exact same thing. Um, But that question to me shifts from how are we gonna steward this temple to its like perfection in terms of it it will never have any boiler issues. It will have the most beautiful roof um, and courtyard, which I believe an upkeep of a building if we're gonna do it, that's important. We can't have a building that's gonna like fall on somebody. But at the same time, to the neglect of what what do the bodies who embody this space need, and what what temples of bodies are we ignoring when we're pouring millions of dollars into a single structure?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and and even our like metrics for how we decide what good stewardship looks like, right? Maybe the neighborhood church has uh, like. Old, old carpeting that turns you off or makes you think that they are not taking care of their building, but actually they've been spending their money on um community supports on a after-school program or you know, hosting being good partners, interfaith partners in the community, right? Like I think sometimes in addition to being obsessed with our own built beautification projects, right, we judge others. By, um, by what we can see or by our standard of what it means to take care of something. One of the reasons I love this text is because
0: Jesus gets angry um, and isn't ashamed of, of his anger at what he sees.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's an interesting, like Jesus has an emotion, like as emoting, um, having an emotion, having a feeling, I think it's an interesting um, mirror around often. I think we want to paint Jesus as like the calm one, the like grounded one. He doesn't get ruffled when someone um, challenges him or he doesn't get um, annoyed when people ask him dumb questions. But here Jesus is, is very clearly angry at the desecration of of this sacred space and what he can like the misvaluing of what is actually sacred, um, versus not versus perhaps, but like bringing bringing like centering capitalism or consumerism in in a space that invites us to decenter it. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm there's something that I think is a connection point around what you were just saying, Lindsay. About like I think sometimes we. Center of an emotional response, like if we walked into a building that was falling down, or like was that was like there the carpet was older, and yeah. yet what they were actually doing in the community was so profound that how when do we trust our emotional responses versus kind of zooming out to the bigger picture of, of seeing what's actually going on? I don't know. I'm wrestling with that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great question because the thing around anger, right? I think that makes this story so striking is the way that dominant white Protestant Christian culture has taught us like anger is is a bad thing. Don't like keep your anger on the inside if you even get angry, which we advise that you shouldn't but um, that it's bad, that it's shameful, that it's dangerous, right? And so we, um, in sort of like a binary way of processing the world, right? It's not like, think about when anger is good. It's anger is always bad. And so I think when we have been trained to accept that, right? we we forget that anger doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like you can examine, Why, why are you angry? What is make? what are the circumstances around you that's creating this response in you, right? Is it, is it, does the anger, level of your anger match what's going on, you know? And so I think um, part of this text, especially for folks in privileged spaces is like sort of a model, Jesus, Jesus shows us what is what that there are things, a things worth being angry about and b um, that that some of those things in some of those cases, especially when we're talking about oppression, exclusion um, and, you know, forced uh, poverty, essentially, like expressing that anger is an act of resistance is an act Mm -hmm. of a faithful act to have a public expression of anger. Um, but I think that's all rooted, f- especially for, for privileged folks in like, we have to develop this ability to self-reflect, to look at the world right. and have an analysis of what's going on um, instead of just saying yes or, you know, like, oh, it's anger, get rid of it.
0: Right, right, or my anger is, justified above and beyond anyone else's experience like yeah i don't want to wear a mask i'm not going to wear a mask i'm angry i can't i can't breathe when i wear a mask like okay. all the 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 righteous anger that is so self-centered mm-hmm. uh suppo- righteous in quotes like right supposedly <laughs> self-righteous <laughs> yeah self-righteous <laughs> anger that is self-centered um yeah I, I i don't know i guess i'm in a what's been coming up for me in the past couple of weeks, especially is experiencing an emotional reaction or, or receiving one from someone else. And um, there's the surface level of it, but then also the, what you're asking us to do is like, okay, what's underneath that? What are some of the conditions that might have caused that emotional reaction um, that, the surface level of the emotion is not always the truth, but there's, there's something else underneath it that, that might be more revealing. So like, why is, if if we're reacting to Jesus's anger in an offended way and not looking at, well, why is Jesus angry? What is he, what is he reacting to? What is he experiencing? What is he trying to say? Um, I think that there's an invitation here from Jesus where it's, we, we actually have the, the beauty of zooming out. We are zoomed out. We are not in the temple experiencing this firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, he's not, he's not shouting at the money changers necessarily. I think he's shouting at the religious leaders who allowed the money changers in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he says, take these things out of here, which I think it's dual talking to both the physical people who are doing it, but those who allowed that to happen in the temple um, and again, I think being able to see this is a template for us as we're navigating emotions from ourselves or our families or people around us. I think the pandemic has also revealed, you know, we're, we're sometimes alone with our emotions. We're sometimes like, like mm. leaking out emotions sideways because we can't actually exert any control on the thing over here. I don't know. It's been an interesting experience these past few months in, in this there, there's fewer outlets for emotion. Um, yeah. And, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't think we talk about that enough.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, um, and I think, I don't know if this is a general thing or from my formation growing up, right. I somehow was socialized to understand that emotions are, are, um, instantaneous like they're they're momentary reactions right and maybe mm-hmm. that's because emotions in my family of origin were big and explosive and like that but um <laughs> but the idea of like the real experience in the world right that our emotions sort of build and they are with us we carry them with us if we cannot express them in a healthy way mm-hmm. um, think is also present in the text but to your point like makes the whole like isolation piece of our experience right right now all the more complex right because now we have nothing but time with our feelings (laughs) And and some of us it's just us and our feelings like in the house um but also like if we sort of have been used to ignoring our, our feelings or, or understanding them as, as reactionary moments, right? Then it's, yeah. it's getting flipped on us. Um, and I think that's uh, you know, that's something to attend to, that's something to think mm-hmm. about. Um, yeah. And I think in, the, in this passage, in John, the other, the interesting thing that struck me, another interesting thing that struck me um, is that Jesus braids the whip, right? Like, (laughs) and now I'm not a whip expert. (laughs) I don't have a lot of animal driving experience, but in my mind, it takes more than a minute to make a whip, right? (laughs) So Jesus, like the anger, a braided whip at least, or, you know, it's not like he picked up a thing and just started wielding it. So like Jesus' anger is such that I'm just imagining him in the corner, like this, (laughs) you know, I don't want to curse on the podcast, but like these mofos up in here, you know, braiding up the whip, like (laughs) that to me speaks of, um, not, not that this is like, um, a reactive blow up, but like there's thought and intention, right? Jesus. And like, we don't know who's to say that this wasn't a planned, um, that Jesus didn't plan this right. When he's coming into Jerusalem, what he knows where he's going. He knows what the, what's going to happen. Right. He's been practicing this faith and celebrating this, this Holy day, his whole life. So, yep. um, I think there's something about recognizing, right. That this isn't happening in the way that anger often gets cast as like a a thoughtless explosion reaction. Um, Mm. But, you know, this is the, for me, I would liken it to the experience in my community of like compounding generational, like, thing after thing after thing that, that oppression is putting on us, right? And how, what that anger looks like after you carry it around for years um, and generations. Mm. I really appreciate you pulling attention
0: to that. And it's funny, right as you were saying, making of course I had been, it had like, my, my brain was starting to noodle it. And it's interesting if we juxtapose with other Passovers, or, or as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the final time, when he asks people to go and get a cult and a donkey, go find these things. But here Jesus is intentional about making it, that, that he himself is the one to braid it together. And I mean, just building off what you were saying, I mean, and we talked about earlier on the legacies, the compounding oppressions, the compounding legacies um, of, of anger, this braiding action to me also feels like a weaving of,
2: mm-hmm.
0: of resilience of um, oppression and, and horrific experiences. Like we all, they all go together to be the, the, the cord, the whip cord of, this is what helps me persevere and change and challenge systems. That anger that is, that is holy in some ways of like, Mm -hmm. I think there are, there is a lot of truth from our emotions. Um, It may not always be the first truth of like, you know, I'm angry about being cut off in line, for example. Um, That's what I feel angry about. Um, But the deep truth, the abiding truth of that anger around, around the systems that need to change and I think part of what we're invited to especially as white folks is in listening to that that the truth of that anger the 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 breadth of that anger the the generations of that anger to recognize whoa my my understanding of the world has been constructed very narrowly based on my experience as a person afforded great privilege and and you know, not put in these sort of situations. I know for me, conversations around abolition, I named were first brought to me by black trans folks in in conversation with the group that I got to be a part of as a trans person. And I, five years ago or four years ago, was like, I don't know what this means. Uh, You know, it was my first time at the temple. It was my first time Mm -hmm. um, experiencing that kind of conversation in that way. And, but, but receiving the anger of the injustice of poli- policing and imprisonment and our prison industrial system took me a minute to sort through and be like, yeah, no, that's, that's an anger I receive. <laughs> and I like, I want to, whatever I can braid into that cord of we need to change this system, I'm here. And, um, <sighs> what are we making together as abolitionists, as liberationists um, to help transform these systems? I don't know, I think there's an invitation in like the weaving of emotion and craft and um, this long game of change to me, again, this text, I don't know if I'd expected to have that come out of this text, but your conversation has really revealed that to me. Mm.
1: Yeah, and that that whip is that weaving, right? Is resistance. Like that's what we are talking about when we when we use the word resistance, right? Because um, to me, I think in the frame of abolition, right, we have we have these two movements, and it really in the frame of of any kind of anti oppression resistance, right, there's the tearing down, the destruction of the tools that are meant for our destruction, right? The the tools that are dehumanizing us. And then there's the the imagining and creating um, Mm -hmm. of something new. And so I think think that part of what Jesus um, shows us and what communities of resistance for generations have been showing us, right? Um, Especially black and brown communities, Especially the trans community, right? Is that this resistance or this tearing down is sacred work, is holy work, um, and has has power to um, to invite other folks in, right, and to um, to liberate us. I would say both oppressed and oppressor. Um, to liberate us to feel our anger at injustice, to liberate us to do the work, the holy and sacred work of tearing down, which is in the Bible. Let's pretend not pretend that it isn't because folks get so upset about um, property destruction, shall we say, um, yeah. which is exactly what Jesus is doing here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that I, I really like your point of like the weaving into what is your weaving into resistance going to look like? Um, whomever you are, wherever you are. Uh, mm, okay, I think that is a beautiful segue to our second
0: reading. Um, and, and, and we're already talking about it, so we won't spend as much time on it maybe, but this I, nuancing resistance beyond some sort of one action. Um, I, wanna, I wanna hold that as we move into the second reading. And so the, the second question that we explore together is how does this text call us to resistance? We might have a few, <laughs> a few instances of that here. And I actually found the version from the Common English Bible. I'd be happy to, to read it through the second time to see how word differences might reveal more for us. So I will read John 2 verses 13 to 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency. He said to the dove sellers, get these things out of here don't make my house, my father's house, a place of business. His disciples remembered that it is written passion for your house consumes me. Then the Jewish leaders asked him by what authority are you doing these things? What miraculous sign will you show us? Jesus answered destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders replied, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is our call to resistance from this text?
1: Um, I was really struck this time, this reading by... um the, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days, um, which, it, you know, J- John is so helpful, the writer of John is so helpful, right? He's like, buy this, Jesus meant this, <laughs> you know, like, yes. like cliff notes of John, um, or footnotes. Um, but I also think about like, so to me in that, there's a there's a seed of like death and resurrection, right? Jesus is talking about he's gonna die and be raised again. Um, and I think thinking about um, Jesus' body as a metaphor that we later take as the church, as us, right? That we are. Um, Jesus' body, or even to extend that mat- metaphor beyond the church, right? Jesus says the reign of God is among us. It's when you're together in community, right? And so thinking about this death and resurrection mode of a, like, we're in a moment where we talk a whole lot about the, the institutional church dying, and some of us get really excited about what, <laughs> um, because we believe in the resurrection because, you know, like, it's not just that, that this particular institution that we're familiar with will die, but that we believe that the church of Jesus Christ will be reborn um, and be made new. Uh, and I think that, you know, extending that as like, th- that's the core teaching of our faith. Right. So thinking about that as our ethic of life in the world, right? That, that there is a cyclical nature to the life that God ordered and created, that things die, people die, institutions die, our, our projects, you know, have a lifespan, um, but then something new, rebirth comes afterwards. And I think to me, Um, that is also at the core of this abolition movement, right? The old way needs to die and a new thing is going to be born. A new way of creating community safety is going to be born. A new way of taking care of our neighbors is going to be born. A new approach, new approaches to mental health are going to be born if we can let these old killing ways, ways that are killing us, die, if we can tear them down. Um, And so I think, to me, part of the call um, that I hear in this in this text today is, let's really, let's really start living like we believe that, (laughs) like we believe in death and resurrection. Like, what does it mean? If I start filtering my, my thoughts and plans and decisions about how I'm going to show up in community through that lens? Um, through an abolition lens is what I want to call it. Um, and then what what actions can follow, right? So I f- feel this call to like shift my thinking, but then also let's get this, this uh, Good Friday to Easter Sunday thing rolling. Like <laughs> let's, let's get to uh, some of the things that need to die and let's get to That's the it. imagining of what God will bring forth through our communal creativity. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I,
0: what I noticed similarly was Jesus said, you know, destroy the temple and in three days, we'll raise a new one. Meanwhile, they have been working on <laughs> this construction for 46 years, <laughs> um, which my God. Uh, but to me, it's like how quickly the new thing can, can come through. This is, which makes me think the seeds of it are already here. That if, if we were just open to, to letting the old thing die, to raising the structures to the ground, the seeds of what can come have already been planted. So such that in just three days, whatever that is, if we are willing to sit through Holy Saturday, if we're willing to sit through I don't know what will come of this, then the new thing is ready to bring spring forth. If we just let the sun <laughs> do its thing and the rain and the, com- the the elements of the communities that have been figuring this out for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just learned a history of um, a community outside of Asheville. Uh, it was, um, near Hendersonville and right after emancipation, former slave enslaved folks came to this section of land and took it over and created a farming community and created like an intentional community mm-hmm. of formerly enslaved folks. And it was going great. And then white people got pissed about it because they were thriving. I mean, what's how many times is that damn story? I am going to cuss on this podcast, replayed over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I I, I look to that as a seed of what real community care can look like such that no one went hungry. Everyone had something, a place to live, something to eat, education, community, you know, nurture, family. Um, It wasn't perfect, but it was a model of something that I think has been replicated in different parts of the world and different places across this country, as it, it, it's not some sort of abstract idea for what an abolitionist way of life is. <laughs> um, it, we're not suddenly like sci-fi creatures, I maybe, mean, maybe we could be, but if we let people's imaginations grow, but, you know, this, the, the, these are very tangible things, and I love that in the temple the things that they're selling and buying are cattle, sheep, and doves, you know? Like I was also struck by the very just like, how messy is that inner, like outer ring of the temple with all those darn farm animals and doves and um, things there. And, and I think like, what would it look like? Maybe people do need cattle, sheep, and doves, but do we have to sell them like that? Like, how can we help people get what they need for their families? Um, and for the broader community that isn't premised on this capitalist idea or, or, you know, financial model. Anyway, so the three days made me, made me just like, what if we believe that the thing is already here and it's so close at hand that we don't have to wait 50 years for it to, to come through if something were to die.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and Um, because I do believe that alternative ways of living and building um, just and peaceful communities are here. Like, what does it mean for the majority of us if that resurrection way, if that those seeds don't come from us, Mm -hmm. right? If the good news doesn't come from us, is it still good news to us? Can we still, do we still want to be saved by it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the tricks of um, of white supremacy and, and capitalism and all of the stew of garbage that our, our culture is formed in. One of the tricks is like, if we didn't do it, we don't want it. So we're, if it's not, if we're not centered, right? Whiteness, straightness, uh, wealth. If we're not centered, then it's not, we don't want to be saved by it. Um, and so we have folks who are willing to vote against their own self-interest. We have folks that are willing to literally die because the idea that would save them came from uh, communities of color or uh, people who, who they think are other, are different than them, right? And so, and so I think the like pertinent question for a lot of uh, Christians, Mainline Protestant Christians is, can we do we still want to be saved by something mm. that is not by us or about centering us, right? Mm. Uh, because you're right, and and um, in in um, communities all over the place, but usually that have been made marginal, right? Uh, they but they exist everywhere. Um, people are living in different ways. And it's not hard to make the transition if you just have the will to make the transition, right? Like, it's not like we need 46 years of brainstorming to figure out what is gonna happen. We need to listen to the people who are already living in a new reality. Yeah,
0: yeah. And just to underscore Jesus's point, that that way is embodied. It's from the bodies, it's from the mm-hmm. the temple of the body,
2: yeah. that
0: must yeah. that it, like that is what is being saved, not this structure, not this building that we are our bodies are saved right. by a new way of living. Um, and would we be brave enough to risk death to receive it? And the death of our ideas, I think, is more. Like the death of art, the way we've, con- the way especially whiteness has constructed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wish, I wish there was a way people who are so in that fa- fear place of what that could mean could partake of the cup and bread <laughs> to realize it is not that scary. It is actually profoundly beautiful. <laughs> um, you yeah. needn't live in fear of that death.
1: And more free, better, like qualitatively better <laughs> than you are are living right now. Um, yeah. And not better because you have more stuff that you can call yours, not better because you have more ill-gained power in the world as an individual, But but better in your spirit, better in your heart, better for the health of your body, better um, it, better in terms of being free and being free yes. together. Yes,
0: yes, that is the sweetness that we can, that is what God is calling us for in the kingdom
2: mm-hmm.
0: is to experience that level of liberation and freedom and beauty and community and being braided together um, in a new way. Yes, yes. Mm. Shall we move to our third reading and realize we're, we're uh, at, <laughs> I don't care about time, yeah. but um, <laughs> we, we, perhaps some of us do have other things we have to do today, but um, I'd love to move into the third reading around um, a vision for the work of abolition that this text might call us to. And Lindsay, would you be willing to read
1: it for us again? The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken.
0: What is the vision for the work of abolition you see in this text.
1: Uh, I think for me, it's still it's still sticking around this this death and resurrection piece, um, but also I think um, thinking about um, thinking a little bit outside the text about who Jesus was in the world and where he's coming from and where he's going to. Um, says something to me about who who wields or who controls the whip, the resistance, the, the movement. Um, that, you know, I think in this moment there are a lot of folks who are um, becoming newly awakened to um, to all sorts of things, right? All sorts of movement for justice things um, but also abolition. And, uh, I, I would think of myself as someone who is new to the movement, right? I'm trying to, to do my best to learn from those who have been working on this for a long time. Um, and, and especially from, you know, the abolition movement is born of Black women, right? And, um, it, it, trying to, trying to, not just insert myself in like now i now i see what's going on here's what we should do right (laughs) right (laughs) but that like i'm not the one i'm not the one who gets to wield the whip even Mm -hmm. though i really let would love if there was an opportunity in my life to flip some tables someday Um, (laughs) that's not actually my role and so thinking about um that jesus uh, Jesus was a person who was directly affected. Jesus was uh, who the Romans were killing, were threatening, were extorting, were dehumanizing. He, that's his community. That's who and where he came from. Um, he, he's the one who, who's leading this movement. And I think similarly for me, I see... In this text, a model that that the work of abolition needs to be led by the folks who um, who are most affected by the um, the terror, the empire's terror of imprisonment and policing, right? And, um so so that doesn't mean, right, that I'm not there, that I don't show up, right? Um, But it does mean that I don't I'm not running the show. Um, And even as a pastor of a church who's going to educate people, I I feel called to educate people about abolition. Right. I'm still not. There's never going to be a point um, where I'm at the at the microphone at the front of the march, wielding the whip (laughs) like that's not my job. So I think there's something about, maybe that I've extrapolated in my listening uh, uh, to the text about like the role of of being in support, of being a follower, of being a learner, um, even while there's something in me that wishes to be (laughs) the one wielding the whip. (laughs) Um, Mm. That's so powerful. And it makes me
0: imagine the scene a bit differently than I maybe had before, Mm -hmm. Jesus was able to carry out the action of doing all this, driving people out, overturning tables, et cetera. And I imagine, you know, the the first time a money changers table is turned over or a cattle is driven from the temple, which must be so loud, um, wouldn't whatever the temple guards come running Mm. And like, what is this disturbance?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I imagine, are the disciples locked arms in a ring around Jesus mm. and, and, and the marketplace to, to allow this action to unfold? Mm-hmm. And in the work of protest, you know, there are, which to me, this is a very powerful protest, like you said, a planned action, not just a one, like, oh, he got angry just because, but he thought about this in advance. Um, and I imagine he talked to the disciples about it in advance and others who might form a blockade or, um, and so, yeah, and, and there's so many other ways for us to be involved besides being at the microphone, besides um, for those of us who are, are not, sent, you know, who are trying to follow. I think my friend of mine um, taught me early about the, the beauty of fellowship and how that is a calling
2: mm-hmm. to
0: to follow those who are leading these movements for justice because of their impacted identities. Um, And the thing that I noticed is who destroys the temple. In Mm -hmm. verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. I had always, I think, Added, or I think in other, other texts maybe, it's like God will destroy the temple. Like who's destroying what? Um, but here it's like, no, you destroy it to me. It's like, it's, it's an invisible subject. Um, you do the action and then Jesus and uh, you know, God, whoever we wanna see that divinity, it helps raise it. So I think this is an invitation to participation not passive observation that we will wait till the temple's destroyed um, and then we can get active around res- uh, abolition and, and liberation but actually we're called to be part of this sacred movement for what will be destroyed
1: mm. that's so interesting that's such a great like now my mind is like <laughs> it's going in a lot of ways um Because when you first said that, I thought I, like my initial response was like, oh, you have destroyed this, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's your fault, you you messed this up. Um, But I think that's so real in terms of like when, uh, how an institution falls, right? Like some of the people are gonna feel like this this is a bad thing and we did a a bad thing and it became Mm -hmm. destroyed. destroyed while other folks are like this is a great thing because it's been needing to come down and we're gonna and we didn't accidentally destroy this we were in there actively taking it apart and Mm -hmm. that i think that there will always be both the conflicting opinions right um but in the end it's going to be destroyed sooner or later and for those of us who find ourselves in the actively taking in the part uh, group, right? We hope it's sooner, but, um, but however you come to that space, right? However it, however it gets destroyed, it's coming down and there will mm. be something that comes, like Jesus will rebuild it, right? Jesus didn't say, destroy this temple, and feel shame about it, and then I'll raise it, right? <laughs> or, or destroy this temple, and I'm gonna be mad because you didn't do it sooner, but I'm still gonna raise it up, right? It, yeah. it, like, there is really, I think, it's, I, I'm just, my, <laughs> I, I'm not good at thinking and talking at the same time, clearly, but <laughs> <I agree. laughs> my brain is just like, wow, like, there were always there will always be right like apologists and and main Mm -hmm. people who are trying to maintain and and um in the end it's just going to be destroyed um so that it can be born again and that's Mm. just the way of it
0: yeah what if we take that as the truth the truth is not that there's one truth but like one of the truths is that whatever we build will be destroyed. Like we cannot, the, we cannot hold on to it in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, that like there have been whole systems created for the everlasting, like this, um, yeah, this, this law means you can pass your land down. This law means the divine right of Kings will, will go through this family. Mm -hmm. we're obsessed with forever and ever Um, and what I hear in your noticing is that no matter our emotions about the system whether we wish it would last forever or we wish it would come down tomorrow the truth that God is revealing to us is that there is a cycle I mean I think indigenous communities have a whole theology about cyclical mm-hmm. like patterns of nature and the beauty of destruction and rebirth. Why don't we pay attention to those too? of, um, I don't know, I think that like the, there's something in this that we've been grappling with around what do our emotion, emotions reveal? What do they conceal um, and despite our individual feelings about it, what is the communal feeling? How do we how do we discern in community? Um, this is something that we talk about a lot in the work of evolving churches to be more inclusive, that no matter, whenever you adopt your welcoming statement or make a change to your bathroom or like whatever the, the visible or tangible action is, there's a whole range of people that'll have feelings about that. There are people who are gonna love it. There are people who are gonna hate it. The hope is, Even if they hate it, they're willing to stay and experience it for a few months Mm -hmm. so that their fear of whatever in the heck (laughs) they think is going to happen won't happen, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. um, maybe, but like that they can actually receive the change. And I think that is, to me, what you're also calling us to is if we center the, the truth of destruction and rebirth from chapter two on um the that that is what it means in the life of faith then how does that open us to different kinds of imagining and living
1: yeah yeah and i think um also letting go of this obsession that we have with eternal things that we create lasting forever right like we have taken and the idea of eternity, right? And raised it to all, uh, I'm gonna say a heretical level. Like I don't have any authority to say who's a heretic or not, but, but like just an, an idolized level, right? Like everything, we want everything around us to last forever. And there's all sorts of like literature about why that's a bad idea and stories and movies, mm-hmm. right? But um, I think in a very practical way, when we talk about, well, first of all, I think learning to let go of that a little more can help us in every realm, as you're saying, right? Like, why did we latch on to the, in Jesus, we get to live forever and then totally let go of the cyclical nature of life that after every death, there's a resurrection, which is a better promise in my in my <laughs> view, right? Um, But I think in a very practical way, when we're talking about the work of abolition, right? Like this is the argument that always shows up. Like we can't defund the police. We can't not have police anymore. This is a thing which we want to last forever. And in our our idolizing of that, especially in white communities, we pretend like it has been from forever, right? Like we've always had police and that's kept us safe. Mm, has it though? Have we? So uh, uh, no, the answer is no. Just no, <laughs> don't want to leave that one hanging out there. Um, so like this movement away, like what would it be? How would it help our imagining? How would it help our bringing forth something new? If we could start letting go of this idea that everything has to live forever yes. um, or that all our things, because we're not really concerned about other people's Theologies, ideas, ways of constructing community, but all our things in white America have to live forever.
0: Right. What if salvation is not the promise for eternal or everlasting life, but salvation is about being braided into the cycle of life, that we are promised rebirth in our own lifetimes, our physical life on earth, we will experience rebirth and what feels like death. You know, the, the facing of the pain, the wound, we thought we never could mm-hmm. um, if we tried to imagine it beforehand yes. that we will survive and something new will spring up in us if we let it, if we let it. Um, yeah, I'm really feeling called that the vision for the work of abolition is centering centering what has caused death, centering the, the reality of our need to face that, face death, face fear, and holding to that promise that I know there's something else. I mean, I know there's something other else possible. I know that we can survive that transition into what is next and not just survive but that is what will allow us to thrive
1: yeah yeah and it will be life-giving mm-hmm. I agree I that's that's it I don't need to add anything to that <laughs> sorry that's what I'm feeling
0: which I mean I just want to offer and then we can we can wrap but yeah, I mean, just again to work against that tendency to believe abolition is far away, and liberation is far away. Yeah. But it's chapter two. <laughs> like, let's bring it to now, mm-hmm. to the as the precursor, um, and living in an abolitionist way. What would that call us to right now? If that's the story we want to, we want told about our lives, like how would how would our biographers, God, <laughs> like pull? something and say, actually, that's, that's how they always lived or that's, that's what kind of like, prefigured the rest of their time on earth. Um, mm-hmm. Let's not save the best for last. <laughs> let's do what needs liberating now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and can that thought process help us to ask some questions? Like not what could this be one day, but like what would it take right now in my life you know what would it take in my neighborhood to change policing what would it take in my church to um to change the way we show up in the community um right. and start you know even if it takes many steps right those are steps that we can imagine right now and start working towards um, that's right
0: and that's i mean, what what our what our convert what our kind of group has really seen for ourselves is like, wait, we don't have to wait. We can start. We can help. We can we can lock arms and push the guards back (laughs) as far as we can um, Mm -hmm. to allow for those who have been braiding their cords for a long time (laughs) to actually demonstrate for us what needs overturning.
1: Yeah. Yep and then we can follow that's right Fellowship. Mm. I like that it's my, my my catch word for this week I'm taking it with me <laughs> yeah you can thank
0: Trina Olson
1: who taught me that word
0: um I the, the way we close our practice is to just name for us what we want to take with us as a result of this conversation I think you were starting into that and so um anything else you want to add to
1: um, I'm taking fellowship. Uh, I will use it. I will credit Trina at least the first time. Um, yeah, that's all. Uh, <laughs> and I think I also just what I really appreciate and and find so inspiring and motivating about the work of abolition is how it feels expansive to my spirit. Like it feels liberating just to say this isn't the way that things have to be. And we can create and imagine something better. And I think um, it's a similar kind of expansiveness and liberation that I feel in the claim of our faith that death is not the end, right? That there's resurrection. And so I just wanna take um, that feeling (laughs) with me, speaking of thinking through our feelings, right? I, w- I wanna take that feeling and spirit of possibility. I wanna hold on to um, the like openness of imagining and of hearing and listening to other people's imaginings and um, the creativeness that is born of that that free open space. Um, so I'm gonna take all those feelings and um, um, keep them with me so that they can, they can hold up and strengthen my, my actions.
0: That's right, yeah. Because those feelings, yeah, the, those feelings, those sensations, that is, that is what, if, if others can taste that, can experience that, it's an embodied reality, mm-hmm. then it helps push against the fear that, that will come when things start to die. It is scary, we don't have to pretend it's not. Right. Um, right. It, there is a holy Saturday and it means not knowing what comes next. And so, but if we can remember those moments of expansion and love and community that that promise something else on the other side, then we're able to get through it and navigate through it. Um, yeah, hold strong against it, I love that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm taking with me this, um, the braiding um, of the cord and being braided into something as a reminder that again, it's not all up to one person. It's not all up to us. It's especially that self self centered feeling or self isolation feeling um, that can the dual sides of that corn, coin. Corn. Um, <laughs> that uh, I think whiteness invites us or, or coaxes us into. Um, but the reminder of being braided into movements with others that we may follow, that we may show up for and with, and um, I think is a testament to what abolition ultimately is calling us to. Is, is the 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 wall? Some of the walls that we take down are those that have put cages around humans and cages around our ideas and our communities, um, and that. This is a new vision of being braided together in a different way. I'm gonna make me a friendship bracelet. I'm pretty sure
1: that's (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's everyone's application activity for the week. After this school lesson, make a friendship bracelet.
0: (laughs) I'll send you one. Um, This has been just a fabulous, Imaginative, liberative conversation as as they always are when we get together. And I appreciate you, Lindsay, and the communities that you that you support and dream with, and how those dreams are braided into the larger world that you get to move into. And I'm just grateful for you and what you bring.
1: Thank you, thank you. And I I so appreciate um, you inviting me to be here, and also. Um, all of the work you do, but especially here on the podcast, um, lifting up so many wonderful, wise voices of our, our friends and colleagues. Um, this is a great soul feeding work. So thank you for doing that.
0: I feel lucky. Oh, well, thanks y'all. We will be back starting on Tuesdays through the rest of Lent. We got folks lined up that we're excited to chat with um, and we'll keep exploring abolition. And in the meantime, be well, and we'll see you next week. All right, take care, y'all.
1: Bye.